Hello, and welcome to Measuring Violence, a podcast where we talk about the research and the practices involved in thinking about and measuring violence. Uh, today, we're talking with Dr. Jennifer Horney, the professor and founding director of the Epidemiology Program and core faculty member of the Disaster Research Center at the University of Delaware. We're also talking with Lauren Kamphausen and is a program manager in the program of epidemiology. How are you doing today? Great. Thank you. Doing well. So today we're talking about the connection between uh, intimate partner violence and violence in general and disaster. So can you tell us a little bit about the projects you've been working on? Yeah, so I guess I can start. I've been working in the field of disaster epidemiology for about 20 years and on several disasters um, after hurricanes in Florida in 2004. And again, after Hurricane Harvey, we had done studies looking at whether or not there were increases in assault and other types of interpersonal violence. And so When COVID happened, we thought there was a really unique opportunity to imagine how that might be different than a more typical natural hazard disaster that we normally study. Yeah, and I uh, joined the University of Delaware's Master in Public Health program as staff right before the pandemic hit. Um, But prior to coming to the University of Delaware, I worked for nearly 15 years with Delaware's Domestic Violence Coalition, funded by the Centers for Disease Control um, to apply a public health lens um, to the prevention of gender-based violence. So I had been doing a lot of work in that space uh, before I came here. And so then connecting with Dr. Horney uh, and her research background, you know, kind of bringing together an interdisciplinary here team here at UD with faculty uh, in the Women and Gender Studies Department um, to look at those intersections, as, as she was saying, uh, around the the COVID nineteen pandemic and domestic violence services community um, in the impact of a disaster and bringing in some of that disaster research and disaster preparedness lens to the work. Thank you. And I guess I I have some guesses, but what what happens in a natural disaster that would increase violence? Yeah. So it tends to be um, as I would expect in a regular situation, um, highly related to power dynamics. So things like receiving uh, financial assistance and other types of aid are typically linked to a head of household. And there are also outside stressors around things like financial stability, housing, um, damage to housing, perhaps kids are not able to go to school, perhaps um, people are not able to go to work or they lose their transportation. And so there's sort of that dual increase in stress along with an inability to escape a bad situation because all of your potential resources for recovery are linked to being part of that family unit with that head of household that's been approved to receive financial assistance and other types of aid as part of the disaster recovery process. And what made COVID different than, say, like a a hurricane or other natural disaster? So I think the biggest thing that made it different was the scope and the scale. So even um, a lot of work was done around domestic violence and IPV after the tsunami in um, Southeast Asia, which was 
massive and, you know, killed almost 250,000 people. And, but even that was more spatially and temporally limited than COVID. So everyone was impacted for a very long time. And at the beginning, the only mitigating things that we had to do were to tell people to stay at home and to stay away from other people and to not go to school and to not go to work and not go to, um, you know, other places where they might be have access to resources or supports. So that was sort of what we thought was really unique is that the thing that we actually told people to do from a public health control measure perspective to protect the community from COVID could have actually made individuals more susceptible to violence. Yeah, and I, I would I would definitely add to what Dr. Horney was saying, and I think that was one of the biggest catalysts when we first got um, our team together to, to look at this, was uh, that recognition within the domestic violence community that the very thing that was paramount in those beginning stages to help uh, deal with the COVID pandemic were things that we know would absolutely increase danger for um, victims of intimate partner violence and how you you balance that, as well as then really talking about um, and examining those effects on an already under-resourced and vulnerable service system and and what those challenges really look like and the impact on those. Um, one of the examples that came up, you know, often when when we were looking into literature or speaking with with various individuals in the domestic violence service community was, you know, even having to look at things like sheltering, which has, you know, kind of complications in and of itself. However, you know, when you're limited and in, in, in how people can move about in sharing common space, um, how you're working through that and how you're, you know, what your capacity looks like to be able to provide um, those safe spaces for, for individuals. So we definitely knew there was some uniqueness to this, coupled with the fact that we also knew because of previous disaster research that, that, that there was the expectation and the anticipation that we were going to see increased rates of violence, right? So we knew there was going to be the need. However, everything we had in place really cut off the ability to, to show up for survivors in the same way. Um, that we are able to outside of the, the conditions of the pandemic. So I'm curious, what kind of interventions or recommendations did you find through this work? So I don't think we're at that point yet. We started the work right as the pandemic began, um, looking at domestic violence coalition websites and just seeing what kind of information they were providing to people about covid um, what were your options? What were the recommendations? And then that evolved into a larger grant that was funded by the National Science Foundation, which we just started last fall, which began with interviews with executive directors of state and territorial coalitions. And so that was really to identify some of those big issues that Lauren mentioned. So sheltering, courts, technology, staff burnout. And so the second phase, which we're about to start, will be surveying the workforce in service, domestic violence service provider agencies across the country. And the third element will be developing tools 
uh, for agencies to use. And, and Lauren can probably say more about those tools and how they fit into a coordinated response. And, and one of the other things that that uh, we, we've been focused on as well throughout all of this um, is really also making sure that we're focused on understanding the inequitable impacts um, you know, within intimate partner violence in similar ways to the inequitable impact inequitable impacts of the pandemic itself, right? So we also know that there um, that this is really exacerbated already existing in health inequities and structural inequities. And we also know that that's always been uh, present and prevalent within intimate partner violence as well. So what does that look like then when you're talking about that kind of the, the, the twin pandemics going on and making sure that we're understanding that. And we started that um, in looking at, as Dr. Henry was saying, when we were doing the, the web resource review of looking at culturally specific and community specific materials and information as well, um, and trying to understand that. And that's also been, you know, kind of a theme in our conversations with coalition directors as well. Um, you know, what does, what does this look like overall, but what does this look like within services for marginalized communities and, and making sure that we're, we're not losing sight of, of trying to unpack and, and understand that. And I think that that really speaks to, you know, kind of our end goal, um, as she was saying, about really wanting to be able to not have this be research in isolation, but research that we're, we're giving back to the, the domestic violence service community and, and really, you know, potentially being able to develop um, some tools and resources for them. And that's really where that, again, that great collaboration, um, discipline collaboration between Dr. Horney's background and expertise in disaster science and bringing uh, our, our team from the gender-based violence world together to really talk about what are some tools from public health, some tools from disaster science that we can bring, um, you know, as we really think about these lessons learned from, from what the domestic violence service community has experienced during COVID. Yeah, and I think we also, as part of this project, are trying to think about other social service systems and how they're impacted and identify policies, for example, that are needed to ensure that people who are in these kinds of professions are considered essential workers and able to get personal protective equipment or be prioritized for vaccinations. And maybe they were less visible, although no less of a first responder than you know, the more frontline healthcare people that were justifiably front and center during the pandemic response. But there were a lot of other first responders working in social services systems, um, be they food pantries, homeless shelters, domestic violence shelters, and maybe they were um, more invisible to, to us and so weren't included in prioritization in ways that they really needed to be. This is really fascinating and an important work. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about research and practice applications, because I think to, to people who aren't in the academic sphere, they might think that this is, this is very common of an arrangement or that most of our research is applied research. And so I wondered if you could talk about what it's like to do both kind of academic research and then applied research. So I think across the board, this is part of a really important process that we tend to skip over when we're recovering from a major disaster, whether that's a public health emergency or a more traditional disaster. And that's that kind of unwinding 
um, of really more than kind of an after action review or lessons learned, but really examining what worked well. So if there was a large increase in the use of online chat services for victims, then how do we ensure that those services continue to expand going forward, even as the pandemic wanes and people are able to do things face-to-face? Or if there are elements of online court or virtual court that work really well for victims because they don't have to have transportation or take time off work or childcare, then how can we identify those and continue them and have the policies in place so that they will continue to be supported? So I think that that's a a big piece that sort of we're all so exhausted and burned out from the response that we just move on to the next thing without really thinking of all the things we did that weren't particularly evidence-based, which ones of them actually worked and which ones of them do we need to go out and get an evidence base for? What should we continue? So to me, that's really the place where the more pure research meets the application is thinking about what worked well and how we need to develop either physical infrastructure, so you know, different types of shelters or different types of you know court buildings or whatever, um, and also those social infrastructures to really support people's success and going forward in the areas where that worked well. And and I think that this this project that we've been we've been speaking of is is kind of a, a really good illustration of this this collaborative team of, you know, I, I know with, with my background in coming here and landing within UD's um, public health and epidemiology program, it's it's such it's such a a wonderful field in exactly the, the question you were asking about, you know, really being focused on, you know, taking that kind of that academic research, but always making sure there's that translation piece and that and that actionable piece to it. Um, because I know when I sat on the other side um, of doing the work, um, you know, more on that practitioner side, that we were hungry for that, right? You know, really looking to having some of the evidence-based and research-based work um, to, to guide and inform us. And so to be able to create this collaboration where, um, you know, we're putting those pieces together and that, that you know, really bringing all the tools, methodology, and rigor of, of um, that academic research, but with that end goal of knowing that we want it to be actionable and we want it to be um, grounded in, in practice and really be able to be useful to, in, to inform that. And especially when you're talking about gender-based violence. So to make sure that we are considering all of the, the frameworks and the values um, in that field and that work, and then that work that is being considered in the research itself. So really understanding the nuances and, and the complexities of the of the issue of gender-based violence kind of in that deeper way. Um, and so I, I know that, that that's one of the richest things for me about this project um, of having that interdisciplinary team, um, of being able to really tap into the the public health expertise at the table, but really our, our colleagues um, in the Women and Gender Studies Department and their scholarly work and years of work of really understanding um, the research around the domestic violence systems and services um, and understanding those lenses, I think has been has been really a, a value add to this project as well. I wonder if you have any advice to listeners who are interested in ways to make their communities more, I guess, robust in violence prevention. 
Are there things that people can support or practices that that people can engage in to help make their communities a little more resilient to violence during disaster? I think one of the things that we heard and really resonated with me as an, a person whose expertise is not in this specific area is thinking about post-pandemic that we have a lot more responsibility as not reporters, but observers, right? So there are different types of people that will have interactions with people who are in distress during an emergency or just during regular times of you know, challenge. So people working at food banks and, you know, people in urgent care centers or different types of, uh, of community people that are going to encounter people who need those services. And so um, I was thinking of them as reporters. And then my colleagues who are much more well-versed in this were like, well, it's not, that's not the appropriate language. But, you know, we all have, I think, usually we think that we see a kind of groundswell of community during a disaster response. And I think COVID was unique because it went on for so long and it was so politicized that it's really unclear to people whether or not that happened in a lot of places and clear that it certainly didn't in many places. Um, and so I think a, a revisiting into, into that sort of looking out for each other and thinking about new spaces in which people need to be reporters, even if it's not in that sort of legal sense of the word. And and I would say, um, you know, for, for our future leaders and policymakers, I, I think, again, what you know, this really brings to light um, a lot of the work that's been happening in the in the gender based violence movement for quite a while of when you're when you're in a crisis like this, a shared crisis, like a pandemic, you you quickly realize where your priorities have, have lied, have 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 been right when it comes to infrastructure and supports. Um, and so how we we continue to push to the forefront um, of viewing gender-based violence as a public health issue, you know, and, and again, the experiences, you know, really matching any other health crisis that we, that we face. I mean, domestic violence impacts a huge number of people. And so doing the work to make sure that we, we make the issue a priority and that we understand that it is a health issue, just like many other health issues, and we should be treating it as such and investing in and the resources and the supports, um, both, you know, in, in a prevention space, as well as, um, you know, to support victims and survivors. And so to me, that's the, that's the biggest thing that I've, I've been working in that space for quite a while. But again, when you go through something like this, and then you see, um, you know, the vulnerabilities in a, in a service system, because of the lack of, I think, prioritization um, and resources and supports, um, it just makes that all the more critically important so that there's system resiliency for the next time we go through inevitably the next pandemic or disaster or the like. I wonder for uh, people who aren't familiar, could you explain a little bit about what it is to treat gender-based violence as a public health issue? Yes. I mean, it, it's so that that work has been happening, you know, I, I I often find myself referring to it as novel, but starting to realize that it's been going on for 15 plus years. So I guess we're moving a little bit past the novel stages. But it but you know, as someone who's been doing that work since the beginning, it it really is boils down to a paradigm shift, right? Of of 
of taking the, the work and the approach to gender-based violence from being very focused on an interpersonal, private, almost like, like a social service issue, right? And really looking at it through the lens of, of, a, of a health issue and, and, a, and, a, and a broader public health impact as that. And so bringing all the tools and lenses from the public health field um, to bear in that work. So, you know, that really includes um, shoring up your your data and surveillance. So really understanding the scope and magnitude of the issue itself, really unpacking and understanding root causes. And that is something that, you know, I'll, I'll talk often about that. It was really nice when you, you paired kind of the gender-based violence field with the public health field, because the gender-based violence scholarly community has been doing that work for a long time, right? There, there are just probes of scholar, scholarly information on the root causes of, of gender-based violence. Violence um, and, and really unpacking that and understanding the the norms and values and and historical structures that go in into that issue and so then being able to bring that to bear within a public health framework to start to to talk about you know if we unpack and understand these root causes then what are what are things we can do to move to a space of preventing violence from happening in the first place um, and moving beyond just our 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 focus on response but really starting to look at you know, challenging social norms, challenging constructs, challenging structures um, that contribute to that violence. And when I said it was a paradigm shift, I mean, I think one of the biggest paradigm shifts that you undergo with this is the very notion that violence is preventable and that it's just not part of the human condition. Um, and really being able to look at it as yes, truly something um, that we can we can work on collectively. And also that that notion of, I think that Dr. Renee was saying, that notion of it being a collective issue, right? Instead of it happening, you know, with at an interpersonal level, that we all are impacted by the violence as a society, as a community. And so we all have a role to play um, in, in ending that violence together. So I, you know, it, it really is um, bringing, I think, two very strong fields together with all of their strengths um, and, and joining those together. Um, in that very comprehensive approach. And then again, being able to move into that space where um, you're really viewing it as a, as a health issue, which is very interesting how it's there are some obvious aspects to that, right? Like we know if we think about physical abuse as an example, we know that there are direct health ramifications from that abuse. But we also have come to understand much more deeply about the, the long-term effects of trauma right, on our, our physical and, and mental health and well-being. So it is not a stretch, I don't think, any longer to really think about um, the experience of gender-based violence as a health issue, as having direct, um, immediate and long-term impacts um, on individuals and being, you know, a, a contributor to our to our health systems and our and our health costs and our health burdens um, in our communities. So, you know, really, it 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 is truly about that about forging, um, you know, kind of these these lenses within that space and creating these these strong, I think, collaborations and partnerships in in working on this issue. Thank you so much. So, where do you see this project going? It sounds like it's it's an ongoing project. What do you think the next phase will be? So, I think really it's in that research translation and application, so going back to re-engage with the state and locals, but then also with the national organizations that can, you know, really use their reach and their communication infrastructure 
to ensure that best practices as we identify them get um, disseminated out to the people really doing the work on the ground. I know as an epidemiologist too frequently, we do studies and we're very focused on data. And at the end we say, oh, someone who works on policy should read this paper and figure out what to do with this data. So I hope this is a chance because of the team that we have put together that's very interdisciplinary and has both academic and practice um, expertise that will really be able to push those lessons learned out in a way and with the types of tools that are useful to people. Too often our academic products end up being, you know, big planning guides or something that sit on a shelf because it's just too much. So I think by, again, having that touchstone of the practitioners on the team, we know what would be useful, what kind of time people have to commit to planning um, for being more prepared. And so we'll try to make those products be as useful as possible to them. And, and I think another piece of this that we've already seen, I think, come out during the interview process is, is even just providing that space uh, for the domestic violence community to be validated in their experiences during the pandemic and really to be able to, to share that and share their wisdom and then again, have that then be able to be translated into something actionable. I think that I hope, like my hope and my role on the team is to see that piece too, right? So that it's that it's not just us sitting here on the university and academic side, you know, kind of kind of um, coming up with all of this, that, that these are the true experiences of the folks that were in it and were on the ground and being able to, to, to take those um, experiences and, and figure out what that tells us um, about moving forward and being able to, to um, you know, to validate that I think is, is really important too. If someone's uh, interested in this topic, where can people find more of this work or uh, who would you recommend they start reading uh, to learn more? The, the National Network um, to End Domestic Violence, so nnedv.org, that is the national advocacy organization for the, you know, kind of the national network of, of domestic violence coalitions and, and service providers. Um, and so our hope is that we will uh, be able to re-engage with them as well to, um, you know, to, to disseminate our information, but they are, they are a great, I think, um, big picture resource um, for a lot of the work that that happens uh, kind of at that at that policy level um, and practice level related to to gender-based violence and domestic violence services. I would say, uh, you know, for me as someone being kind of new to the other side, um, you know, really looking, um, and you can even start with uh, Dr. Horney's own own CV, but really um delving into some of the disaster science, I, I think is is a really great space. i'm I'm always one for picking up, tools and frameworks from other fields to really think about how that can be applied, you know, to a field that that I may be interested in. So definitely folks who find themselves very interested in gender-based violence, um, really kind of branching out um, into some of these other fields to see how, um, you know, that can inform your thinking and, and your approach to the work. I think that, that I would really strongly encourage that. I would also strongly encourage folks to check out public health, whether that be, you know, a master's of public health program or something like that, um, you know, as a potential discipline and, and field. I, I think that when folks 
um, find themselves, find their way to public health, they find that it is it is an incredibly interdisciplinary field to really be able to apply a, a lot of different areas of interests and passions um, to, to your work. Thank you both so much. Is there anything else you want to add or something we didn't touch on in the interview? One piece I, I, I will I will make a plug for is, you know, um, we talked about this interdisciplinary group. So I, I'd really like to commend the formation of the um, Center for the um, Prevention and Research of Gender-Based Violence that was started here at UD because I think it it holds a really bright future for being a catalyst for exactly things like this, uh, really bringing together some some great academic interdisciplinary teams uh, to really look at the intersection of a lot of issues in a lot of fields with gender and gender-based violence in particular. So I, I'd just like to put that plug there for the for the center and the amazing work that they're already doing. Thank you so much. And I, I appreciate the plug as someone who uh, directly works for the center. It's always good to hear. A special thanks to Manelli Marcelino for the intro and outro music on this podcast. And a special thank you to the University of Delaware's Center for the Study and Prevention of Gender-Based Violence.